it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And thanks to our malt mates at Cry Malt, I'm Matt Kierkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. We're in this week, breweries and growth with Steve Jeffers from Stomping Ground Brewery. Stomping Ground has been on the expansion track with a brewery at the Melbourne airport announced, ooh, 18 months ago now, and also last week they opened the Morris Moore Brewery in Moorabbin at last. Of course, both have been impacted by COVID, so I was very keen to find out from Steve just how they managed these both during COVID and keeping the business going strongly while COVID was taking place, as well as learn a little bit more about the idea behind their growth strategy. We've seen a lot of breweries opting for multiple breweries or multiple venues, and I wanted to find out whether Steve thought that was the path forward. Needless to say, we chatted about a whole lot more besides. Like many of our frequent guests, and in fact, like all of our guests, I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Steve both on and off mic, and I always find his insights very valuable, and I hope you do too. Steve Jeffers, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Thanks, Matt. Nice to talk to you again. Mate, very exciting news this week, and I I guess uh, that Morris Moore has finally opened. We'll come to Morris Moore and COVID and everything like that, but how have you guys been uh, through COVID? Listen, it's been a bumpy ride this last, uh, the most recent lockdown that we had where there was no government support um, was particularly challenging. Um, not that we kind of are always putting our hand out for government support, but it certainly was was tough, not just on the business, but uh, on our staff to varying degrees as well. So the last one was hopefully the last one that we will have, although we obviously wait anxiously and see what happens uh, around the country. But it's, it's nice for a change that it's not uh, Victoria's uh, experience. So we're enjoying it while it lasts, but we're cautiously anxious and anxiously waiting to see what happens over the coming months before vaccinations take hold. Are you experiencing any survivor guilt? You know, being <laughs> I know that the rest of the country, as they watched Melbourne, uh, you know, with, and their hearts went out to Melbourne, there was that little bit of, I'm glad it's not us, but geez, I feel bad for them. You know, is that what you're um, describing? Oh, listen, I think that above all else, I think it's relief for us is... Uh, We've had, I don't know how many days, like many, 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 many days more than any other states uh, in lockdown over, uh, over the journey of this COVID thing. And uh, we're just relieved um, that we're not in it again. And uh, we have a lot of sympathy, obviously, given what we've been through for what's happening, particularly in New South Wales and Sydney. And uh, it's there for the grace of God goes us. But we've because we know it and we know how painful it is uh, to our businesses and just to our general well-being is that... We, uh, we're hoping that they can get out of this uh, pretty quickly and for all our sakes is that we can avoid another one um, until later in the year when hopefully, like in the UK and others, once we get enough uh, population vaccinated that we can um, be back to relative normality. And clearly, uh, there was a big impact on uh, the, the Morris Moore development, which uh, you know, God, I think you announced, I think we wrote about it about 15 months ago. Possibly longer, I think. I was actually looking yesterday at something online from one of uh, one of the earliest stories about when we announced it. Um, yeah, we were supposed to have opened, I think, a year, uh, maybe even 15 months or so ago, uh, and we were 
delayed for a number of reasons anyway, mainly because the, we were trying to kind of value engineer, I think is the term, uh, because we had designs that were um, bigger than our budget. And so we spent some months uh, trying to trim here and there. That doesn't sound like uh, <laughs> you and uh, Guy and uh, Justin. Well, I think it's any any experience of like I've, we've got friends who build homes and you get uh, tell someone that your tell someone your budget is X and they'll come back with a design that you love and then you get it quoted <laughs> and it's, it's X plus twenty percent and and then you've already fallen in love with it so you go through this this difficult process where you're you know cutting things that you really fell in love with in order to be able to make it work so we went through all that process and fortuitously that delay then meant that. Just when we were about to sign the building contract is uh, we is when the world changed. And uh, we all said, well, we're not signing that at the moment. And we obviously paused it. And clearly in the months that followed, we really were grappling with whether we would ever do it, whether we could ever do it. And um, thankfully, the, the developer that we had partnered with on, on the idea and at uh, Morris Moore was really um, – in, wanted us there more than ever, and uh, and we were able to, I guess, renegotiate everything so that it de-risked it sufficiently that uh, we decided uh, that we weren't going to be in in lockdown forever, and uh, we decided to press ahead. And we were very fortunate to open two weeks ago today. And how was the process? Like, because I, you were clearly building um, with uh, lockdowns and everything going on. Listen, the process was. I think we just made good when we could. We uh, there's certainly from my personal point of view is that I wasn't able to be as hands-on in the process as I like to be and as I have previously been, and that was because some days, I, like in some instances, I was juggling homeschooling and, and I couldn't get out and I couldn't go and look at furniture all over Melbourne and look online and look for old salvage pieces. So. It was definitely a more challenging experience for me in my role as kind of bringing these things to life. And um, I know it was hard on the, Justin and his team and the recruitment of staff and Guy pulling the brewery together and getting um, contractors to come out and do their work. So it was – but listen, over the last 15 months uh, in Victoria particularly, we've all learned to to roll with the punches a little bit. So we, we just did that and took – as I said before, we kind of did what we could when we could do it. and then we suddenly were ready to open. We got the liquor license even earlier than we expected and uh, we opened as soon as we could. Um, but we were unable to have any opening party because I think 10 days before we were still in lockdown and couldn't <laughs> organise anything. So we literally just opened the doors and very fortunate for us is that there was great anticipation around the community for what we were doing and we had queues out the door three days later and um, it's been uh, really positive so far. Now, I, I don't know the Moorabbin area terribly well. I know it's well on the south side of the city. It's got a different feel to, you know, uh, Collingwood, um, where the, the original stomping ground is. Um, have, have you gone for the same sort of feel to take a little bit of Collingwood uh, down south? Or have you given it its own uh, venue feel and, uh, you know, appeal? Well, when we sat down with our collaborators, the Studio Y and Platform Spaces designers and architects uh, who worked with us on Collingwood, um, I had described it at one point as uh, saying that we, we were draw- we'd certainly drawn to old buildings. Uh, we just liked the character of them, but we weren't interested uh, in doing anything that was a cookie-cutter approach. But we did 
I, I kind of came up with the term that maybe I read somewhere else. We wanted it to be reassuringly familiar. So <laughs> we wanted to, we wanted there to be some cues that if you'd been to Collingwood, that you'd, you'd walk into Morris Moore and kind of recognise that there were that it was a similar sort of vibe or similar sort of aesthetic to to Collingwood. But uh, we really had a very different building there because it was an old building that had used to house all the enormous boilers that uh, heated and cooled the entire cigarette precinct or factories so um it was it was eight meter high ceilings and uh it had big huge openings and so we kind of used all those elements of the building um and then brought it to life as i said with some of the dna of collingwood um that people would be familiar with but also some completely unique elements namely of which is a an enormous uh, chimney that sticks up out of the uh, the main beer garden um, <laughs> into the sky which we worked around um as well and are, are there smoking spaces in Melbourne? Uh, very, like, what, 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 uh, what are the smoking you, laws down there? Well, it's uh, it's the same as Collingwood, uh, but we certainly have had many jokes uh, from people who have uh, been, been there. And, and because the Philip Morris factory was a, a larger employer of uh, people in the community since the 50s, is that uh, there's many, many people that we've come across in the journey who have been involved with the site for decades. And, in fact, our landscaper is... Uh, is a guy that's been tending and does working with the plants and trees and on the site for 35 years. And uh, when I was looking for someone to collaborate with, the uh, developers spoke highly of this guy. And now he and his family, uh, including literally his, uh, he's got a daughter, a, a son-in-law, and they've got six children now, one of which was born while they were working on the site. They were all coming and helping out. So the, the team that we've used are either like-minded people like uh, Glenn I just mentioned or the designers, the architects, uh, the you know the beer system guys. We've used pretty much the same team that we've used uh, at least on on Collingwood, and in some cases, uh, other ones as well. And I mean, at the same time, or just before um, COVID and running into COVID, you also had the airport, um, you know, brewery bar as well um, that w- would have been massively affected. Uh, how have things been going there? Well, it opened about two months before. COVID hit, first hit, and uh, it was trading its socks off. It was um, quickly the busiest hospitality site in the entire airport, um, partly because post-security post in the Virgin Terminal 3 is there's very little choice. That's, mm. that's one of the key factors. There had been plans, and there still are plans, to uh, open a uh, kind of a cafe, a pretty cool cafe in the same terminal, but that was delayed by all the lockdowns as well. So we were it pretty much. And uh, as a result, we were when, when flights were flying and borders were open, um, we just have been enormously busy to the point where it's actually arguably been too busy because when you have thousands of people coming through a terminal and there's only one outlet and the, <laughs> under when that's under enormous pressure because you've got queues out the door, people are grumpy before they even get to the door. And uh, hiring staff, or hospitality staff, has been a real challenge everywhere. But at the airport, I think it's uh, even harder. And uh, we weren't able to consistently deliver what we expect of stomping ground venues uh, all the time. And uh, we've managed, uh, through a lot of effort, to to really improve things significantly and get close to or at our usual standard. But it's been a real challenge out there because it's not, you know, working in an airport environment is a whole different or operating in an environment like that is really challenging because sometimes you're dead because flights have been delayed or suddenly a flight's been delayed 
on out that outgoing flight and then you've got kind of a really busy terminal <laughs> with right. people with people with nothing to do so you get these really big peaks and uh, uh in trade that you do your best to manage and other times it could be definitely quiet because the terminals you know the plane, planes are delayed or for whatever reasons pretty unique environment yeah so i mean that that would and People would be, I'd imagine, there for a much shorter time than they would if they'd made the effort to go to, you know, the, the original stomping ground, for example. Listen, uh, yeah, I, I think pe- people go to stomp. A lot of people go to stomping ground at, at Melbourne Airport simply because it's there. It's the only thing that's there. Uh, I think what we, I'd like to think that uh, when people walk in the door or when they know that a stomping ground is there, if, it, if they're familiar with our other venues, is that uh, they would be pleased to see that there's 20 different beers on tap and great food and hospitality. But uh, many people are there just because they're catching a flight out and that's uh, a bar that they can they can go to. And you're right, some people are there fleetingly, might be there to get a takeaway coffee or a six-pack of beer and they want to get onto their plane as soon as possible. And then there are other people who might be early uh, for a flight or their flight might have been delayed. And, and you do find some people are sitting there for hours because multiple flights have been delayed because of weather. So, as I say, it's a really, really unusual environment in which to trade. And uh, we're lucky with our partners, Delaware North, um, operating there is that they've just got so much experience operating both in airports and stadiums around the world is that they, uh, they can really help us kind of navigate through that as best as possible. And there are challenges in making the beer on site. So, like, are you making much on site? Um, you know, with all of the the security challenges of getting the ingredients and everything through. It's you know what that hasn't been an enormous challenge from the ingredient point of view. We have uh, we brewed a number of beers out there, and as we go in and out of lockdowns, we've kind of just paused that for obvious reasons. But uh, we're shortly be brewing there again. The biggest hurdle we've had, I believe, uh, out there from a brewing point of view is uh, extraction and the sort of hurdles that you have to jump from a security point of view when you put any of these things in is uh, is much, you know, the bar is much higher than if you were doing it outside of a highly secure environment like an airport. So we've uh, kind of worked with the airport to navigate that because, of course, not many airports in the world that have working breweries. So mm. we're they're trying to figure out ways around their normal processes that work for us as we are for them. So... Um, it's been a really collaborative thing, but it's it's been challenging, and we're looking forward to brewing there um, pretty shortly again. But getting the ingredients in, that's that's actually not too hard because everything that goes in, whether it's a full keg of beer or you know a bag of frozen potatoes, uh, it's uh, for fries. They all have to go through security, so we just bring malt hops out there as we normally uh, as we normally would um, any other any other kind of ingredients, and then they just go through the usual X-rays. But I guess you'd have some challenges getting spent grain out, for example, that you can't just sort of get the farmer to back his truck up and uh, dump it in for the pigs or the cows. Yeah, actually, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I, I can't tell you what we do with our spent grain. I, that's a good question. I suspect, I certainly know at one point it was discussed about putting them in bins and, and sending them out um, because stomping ground, we send some of our kegs directly there. So we do have some reps who go out there and obviously the brewer uh, goes out there from time to time as well. So, um I'm not quite sure what we settled on with that, but listen, it, they're, they're not insurmountable cha- challenges generally. That We haven't found any of them to be such that uh, we're scratching our head going, why did we ever think of doing this? Uh, it's more we just uh, want to get into that routine where we're not you know, locking down and opening again. We just want to – we'd love to get a clean run at it uh, because <laughs> – 
Um, it's a great opportunity. It's a small little brewery set up. But it's obviously there primarily for theatre, but it also presents some of our younger brewers great opportunities to go out there and flex their creative brewing muscles under the guidance of our head brewer, Asher. Um, and uh, there's so there's pl- a long list of beers and brews that we'd love to, uh, to, to make happen out there. Actually, and you raise an interesting question, and one of the things I did want to ask you about was we have seen over the last 12 or 18 months a number of uh, breweries looking at expanding their footprint, you know, whether it's uh, yourselves um, now with uh, Morris Moore in the airport, Ballistic um, up my way have uh, you know, either built their own breweries or expanded um, by buying uh, other breweries. We saw Batch Brewing uh, Crowdfund very much talking about, you know, the hub-and-spoke model initially um, opening venues, their own branded venues. What is the attraction to you of, you know, rather than going for a distribution footprint, um, you know, from the, from the original brewery, in actually opening more venues? Well, we've got we, we look at both really. Both are important to us. Working with great bars and, and pubs and restaurants around Melbourne is, is really key to where we see Stomping Ground growing. In terms of uh, in terms of the, well, the main reason we have chosen to open a few venues so far in Melbourne is is because it's a complete and controlled Stomping Ground experience. Like there are not many venues that uh, uh, you can go to that would have more than one or two stomping ground beers on tap and we passionately believe as we have done through the tap house days and uh, obviously through gabs as well is that there is a beer for everyone and we want to it's really important for us to showcase a wide range of beers both at the tap house as we've always done uh, at gabs and then in stomping ground so we have um, 20 or so beers at any one time and they're carefully curated to make sure that we kind of run a broad spectrum of flavors and complexities and there's no better place, we think, to do that than at our own venues. So we're very mindful of where, how we do it. I think, you know, Stomping Ground exists, or the venues that we have, both in Collingwood and Morris Moore, are in industrial areas. We don't, we've, it's a large format venue, so that's where it works best. But we don't really want to be on any high streets. Um, we've got no plans to be on any high street where we're kind of closely competing with the pubs and bars who we like the support of. Um, and there is there is uh, always some tension, I think, between local operators and um, and breweries. And I think uh, you have to be careful about that balance that you strike. But I, I, I think it's, um, it's, it's certainly hospitality has been in our DNA before we got into brewing and mm. before we got into the festivals. We love every day getting up and uh, speaking to, you know, putting a beer in someone's hand, a customer's hand, and talking to them about it, and uh, it, I, I wouldn't be in this game, and I don't think Guy or Justin would be either. We wouldn't be in, have been motivated to open Stomping Ground if it was we were just building a factory somewhere and uh, churning out beer and hoping that uh, people would put it on tap. We think it's uh, it's it complements our own interests and, and what our ambitions are to have um, a few venues, not not dozens, a few venues around that um, people can come kind of get the full Stomping Ground experience. Clearly, um, from what you've said, that you know, just having more than one or two of your beers at any one venue is is valuable. How much does it factor in as well having those little bridgeheads um, in communities with consumers increasingly looking to local, or you know, looking to one of the attractions of craft beer is that it is local and having that local footprint that people can touch. 
Well, I think I remember uh, James Atkinson, your uh, old colleague and friend, and I, I must have been about six or seven years ago, he and I talked uh, about how we both felt that brew pubs were so underrepresented in Australia that uh, that compared to, say, other state, other countries like the US, is that we saw that changing significantly over the over the ensuing decade. And, and that's come to pass where uh, every, every suburb can have its own little brew pub. Now, whether they have broader ambitions to wholesale, well, that's up to them. And, and uh, it's obviously increasingly competitive um, beyond your own four walls. But I just think it's such a great experience to, for, I'd love every suburb to have its own little brew pub and obviously you've got to make brew great beer and i think great beer is table stakes if you're opening a brewery these days but um clearly uh, and i think COVID has just uh, exacerbated or accelerated the the trend towards local and you've seen not just local brew pubs flourish but you've also seen even the big guys lean into more local offering and uh, than ever before and so for breweries of all different sizes i think local uh, is leaning into local is is a great opportunity, but I think it's a it's a not just an opportunity. It's a it's a wonderful kind of uh, manifestation of just community spirit. I just I just think it's so fantastic that there are so many breweries, and uh, in, even in the southeast, or even in Collingwood, we, we opened. Uh, there was Moondogger uh, not far from here, and, and Mountain Goat a little further. But since we opened, I think there's five breweries that have opened. And they do, I think we're all doing well. And then in, in the southeast, we've got uh, some fantastic breweries uh, locally to us and further down the Mornington Peninsula. And from what I understand, all are, all are doing well uh, in, and all of them have some sort of hospitality touch point as well. So clearly there is an appetite in the market for uh, these sort of brewery, brew pub experiences. And uh, I love it. And I think it's got a long way to go in terms of uh, growth around the country, broadly speaking. And again, I... If the tables were turned and I was being interviewed, I'd wax lyrically about the local pub um, as well and how it differs from the big pokies pubs that have evolved. But I'd, I'd, I'd sort of take you back to the comment that you made that um, like the airport is a little bit about theatre. So I'm presuming that the brewery there, you're still supplying um, a lot of volume from the, the main brewery. Um, and so getting the benefits of the economy of scale that comes from that, um, as well as not having the brew pub cost base for the airport brewery, but still getting people passing through feeling that they've drunk in the shadow of the brewery that made the beer. Is that a, a fair summary? Yeah, well, I think um, going back, I don't know, uh, along maybe eight or so years ago when I was based in the States uh, for a while, and, and one of the reasons I was there was to look at what Guy and I might do next, and then Justin came on board after after Stomping Ground kind of was ideated. Um, and uh, I just loved going into little brew pubs and seeing the brewery brewer just do their stuff and, and smelling it. And when we – our kind of idea, and it makes probably no sense in lots of ways, but we, we kind of love brewing on site at our venues. And uh, for, the reason, for the reasons I said before, obviously the idea of brewing beers in, the, in front of people – um, but also giving our younger brewers an opportunity to go out and brew on a small setup and and uh, improve their brewing skills. Um, that's that's kind of the the appeal. Uh, m- most of our beers are brewed in Collingwood. Collingwood is where uh, we brew and package certainly can all our products. Uh, what Morris Moore will do for us is it's a twelve hex system with I think about quarter of a million liter capacity. Is uh, we'll brew keg uh, the sort of 
beers that we like to have on most of the time at our own venues mm-hmm. um, that don't often travel to taps beyond or to many venues beyond stomping ground venues, um, as well as some of our limited release beers um, that are keg only as well. So in terms of canning, all the beers that we'll do, we'll, uh, all those sort of limited releases, and obviously the cores come out of Collingwood, but uh, Moorabbin's not a tiny setup. It's it's there as a bit of an R&D opportunity uh, our lead brewer mark robinson uh has uh, been trained under asher and asher keeps a, a close eye on what's brewed at all our venues he, but, would, uh, yes. he also uh, he, he as i said before he sees it like we do as an opportunity to let some of these uh younger guys and girls go out and um just have a bit of fun and um you know be creative i imagine that having multiple venues would lead to cost savings for example because you, you whilst on one hand you've got a have multiple kits and multiple expansions and multiple brewers, you're still getting some cost benefit or some scalability from ingredients and cans and those sorts of things in, in bulk? Is that a... Uh, listen, I'm probably not the best person to answer that, but I would have thought not really. Like, it, uh, if we... It, it would make more sense in the likes of Morris Moore to 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 turn over that uh, footprint we've got for the brewery and fit in another... I'm going to guess another hundred people seated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that would make more sense. Uh, okay. Assuming assuming people would still come if they weren't eating or drinking in the shadows of those large tanks. But mm. um, and then if we didn't, if we weren't brewing there and we were brewing everything at Collingwood, and uh, then those cakes were then going out to the likes of Morris Moore and the airport, that would make more sense on almost every level. I would have thought. But um, as I said, it's it doesn't. It's not necessarily the smartest thing, but it's something that we felt really um, compelled to to do for for a bunch of reasons. And I think customers like that above, maybe above all else, is that uh, we like to brew um, in front of people, and yep. uh, I think people like to the feeling of drinking beer that was brewed, as you say, through the glass or just just over there. And and that's what I guess I was getting at, because there are more efficient ways of doing it, and still, you know, having a hospitality experience that people can enjoy, um, but there is something about drinking, you know, in, in, the, in the brewery or even having the perception of it if all of the beers aren't from there. Yeah, well, listen, I, I think of the, let's say of the, we, I imagine we'll probably have two or three beers, no more than five on tap at Morris Moore that are brewed on site. The other 20 uh, or so would, will come from either Collingwood, mostly from Collingwood and a few from the airport. And, and it's one of the things I'm really quite keen to do on our printed menus and menu screens is to, to give a call out to where the brews are made. So um, if you're in Collingwood, for instance, you'll see all beers are brewed in Collingwood except we're noted and you'll see this one's brewed at the airport and this one's brewed at Morris Moore. And we'll do that at each of the venues uh, as well um, and see how people respond. And I certainly – and so the idea is to share those beers. If I don't think there'll be many instances where we'll brew a beer in Morris Moore, for instance, and it wouldn't make – it to our other mm. uh, stomping ground venues, and um, who knows, we might well find that there are there is a beer that we brew a short runoff that uh, really kind of taps into, pardon the pun, to <laughs> what what you know the local appetite is, and it suddenly becomes you know a regular beer. I could absolutely see that happening in the future. And how much does the current style, you know, where we're seeing so many breweries churning out, you know, seasonal, you know, what were once seasonal beers, but are actually monthly releases of new beers that the, you know, that constant need to um, command attention from easily distracted brewers um, plays into having those, you know, three different sizes of breweries that you can, um, you know, 
I guess, more efficiently play to that small batch, you know, ever turning over style demand? Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. I remember asking, um, I think, my mate Joss uh, from Garage Project, uh, as a, I was, he was on stage at uh, Biavana in Wellington about six years ago, and I asked the question to him in the panel of if, if the the sort of pressure that brewers do the is there pressure brewers feel to uh, to brew new beers all the time, and is there a point where it becomes all a bit silly? And uh, I don't know if we've hit that point yet. Like I think we've certainly, from time to time, we get caught up in it a little bit, and. I know certainly during COVID when we had uh, the first lockdown, we had all this beer in, in kegs and tank and we end up releasing a new beer in can every week or so. But we, we kind of have settled down into kind of maybe one every six weeks in limited edition cans. Um, certainly, you know, how, you know, I know some, and it's fun, exciting, but it's not for us to release a new beer in can every week, but every six or eight weeks, it feels about right for us. But uh, what, what they, we really don't, put any restrictions on them in terms of what they put in keg if they've got the tank space and obviously now we've got a couple of another brewery or two where we can brew more limited release beers for keg only um and they just literally go on in the part in the in the beer halls and uh, people can taste them and as long as we we have some general guidance as to uh, to ensure that we have that broad spectrum i was talking about earlier of flavors complexities characters and and the like and um as long as they kind of uh, sit within or f- make sure that we tick those boxes, the brewers can really, um, they have a fair degree of latitude to brew keg-only beers that's um, just to, again, to, to be creative. And, and yes, it, it, it gives us something new to new news to tell people. So it does give us something to market. But we are doing it for fun uh, in, the brewer, in, the, in the beer halls as much as, as anything else. Oh, and none of that was a criticism. And you use the word silliness, and you know silliness yeah. is very much in the eye of the beholder. And yes, uh, consumers are demanding, um, and and that's the thing. You know, to, to ask these questions is more to sort of say, well, you know, fifteen years ago, breweries had a core range, and we're seeing more and more breweries that if if they have a core range, you almost never hear from it for the constant. Um, you know, attention getting of new beer releases, and certainly the the frequency with which couriers are turning up at our offices from some breweries uh, these days with uh, so many beers that you only ever see once. It seems to be a lot of pressure in the marketplace for breweries to you know cater to that you know attention deficit drinker. Well, that's that's kind of what I was saying. Like, it's, it's silliness. I don't don't mean that as disrespectful to any breweries because yeah. you know there are some breweries that do that so well, and that's their thing. And, and what I was referring to really is our own kind of the way we approach it ourselves. Is we've gone through these waves ourselves as as owners and, and brewers as to what's kind of the right what fit what works for us, and we've kind of settled on where we think uh, is sufficient new releases out there to keep uh, people who are interested in what we're doing interested um, but at the same time keeping the main thing the main thing which is is we want to see our you know our core beers and our smashes in as many people hands in our town in our hometown as possible so there's there's the we think we found the balance right finally for us um, but uh, what works for us is obviously a very different to what other people have and I love you know, I love some people who can churn out beers as as, as often as, as some do. Uh, it's just not something that we we might have tried for a bit or flirted with the idea, but that doesn't kind of fit in with what uh, what we're trying to achieve. What is your biggest seller? Uh, Gift Street is uh, our biggest seller by some way. Uh, the smashes are, are now I think about a third of all our volume. They uh, just have been extraordinary. Um, 
and uh, particularly passion fruit. Uh, that's now just, just sells like hotcakes, uh, those smashes, and particularly passion fruit. Um, our laneway is uh, getting a lot of traction on uh, on taps around Melbourne as well. But uh, yeah, Gips is uh, Gips is uh, the the favourite. Um, surprising, I guess, when we know pale ale is, is is by far the most popular style in the in the craft space. Um, yeah, uh, Gipps Street is is the one that uh, most people just. That, that, yeah, that's the biggest seller, and it's most uh, most distributed around our hometown. It, it, it's interesting to see though how different, um, you know, stylistically the industry is at the moment. In in your prognostications, both you know as a hotelier through uh, the tap house and as a brewery owner, what do you think is coming down the pipeline, or where the industry is going? Do you think we will get fatigue from the choice? Listen, I think so, and I, but I've thought that for a long time. That's yeah, what well, I was saying. Before, I won't ask you I to pick brought, when it'll happen. Yeah. I, listen, I do think so. I obviously have spent quite a bit of time both living and travelling through the States, and I've kind of walked into grocery shops and seen supermarkets with aisles full of, of variety. But I, And I, fo- I follow what's happening over those uh, in those markets uh, through the business trades and see that uh, I think they, there was a term I saw once, schemageddon, which is where there was just so many different products. Um, but now there's kind of appears to have been in recent times a rationalisation where distributors are saying, listen, we can't take all of that. Um, you've got to, um, because we can't sell it all and there's not enough shelf space for it all. So you need to consolidate a little bit. And I think that there is uh, that certainly going on. And I think that'll happen at some point here, but um, I think to, to to what I was saying earlier is is I think brewers can play to their heart's content when it's just on tap in their own venues, or even if they've got supporter venues that will put on a rotator tap of their products from time to time. So I think that um, there's always going to be an appetite for it. But do I think that uh, we've reached peak scheme again? To use that term, I don't. I don't think we have yet. I, I, I thought we would have by now, but there's just a, an insatiable appetite for amongst beer fans for new, 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 new. Well, but the, the, see that, and, and that's the thing that I grapple with is when we say beer fans, there seems to be a, a fairly small subset of the, the complete beer market that wants those things and it it's a very very crowded place to be um you know when you walk into some of the big bottle shops even the bws's that last year were proudly you know local lover campaigns they've brought out a whole lot of category you know matches in you know under the pinnacle drinks and you you're starting to see the selections there but the range actually decreasing a little bit and i i hold fears you know for for some of the brands that are expanding, thinking that their uh, COVID lockdown distribution is going to go on forever. Yeah, I think um, I think well, no one knew really what was happening and what was going to happen, and uh, I'm not sure we've kind of seen it all fully wash out yet as to where what's going to happen and what the trends are and uh, and the like. I certainly understand that some of the, the big chains are looking at having more, obviously they're leaning already to, to more localised product and they're also, I think, looking into uh, having, you know, more of these limited releases that uh, are being churned out at, at uh, vast speeds. So when I say beer fans, yes, I think clearly we know that uh, that most of the beer that uh, beer fans are drinking, are they, they tend to be generally uh, not particularly promiscuous. They'll have a, they'll have a handful in their, in their, 
portfolio or repertoire. I don't know. I think that number has gone up. But you probably speak to that better than I can. But there, there is clearly enough of a niche of beer drinker, however small, that that uh, is has a willingness to to support all these limited releases. Uh, whether that is sustainable, I don't know. Like, um, I, I, I don't know about you, but I'm certainly long past the days of trying to keep up with it, uh, trying all these beers. Um, <laughs> But uh, I've now got uh, Jomo, which um, someone told me recently is the joy of missing out. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I've I've completely kind of am now comfortable with the fact that I'm not going to taste ninety nine percent of beers and they hit the market. Yeah, I'm 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 comfortable in that now. It's a hard position to reach, but I'll tell you what, it's exhilarating when you do. But it's that <laughs> mindset is a big thing that I see as counting against the growth of craft beer and you you did ask what i'd seen and unfortunately you know australia doesn't have very good data the data that i see people quoting all of the time seems to be the same data and a lot of it is fairly easy to punch holes in um Mm. which takes me back to those home brand beers or the uh you know the 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 beers that are made by the the, private label kind of private label ones because the people with the best data in the industry are the people that sell more than 50% of the beer and they keep that data very close to themselves, um, yeah. which, which is, is I find is terrifying if I was a brewery owner. Yeah, well, we've, we've recently started investing in some, uh, paying for some data um, in the last 12 months and we've been, we've got insights we've never had before and surprise, in some ways we've been pleasantly surprised as, as to how we're faring. Um, but we know that it's, it's only a tiny portion of where, of, of our overall sales. So we, we're still flying blind, generally speaking, um, but we've got something which is better than nothing. But mm. as, as you say, the big guys uh, have all that data and generally keep it pretty close to their chest, um, unfortunately. Obviously, craft beer is growing. You know, if, you, if you look at people who are drinking anything other than you know, the, the lagers that were once um, consumed, there is growth in that. Do you think the engaged consumer market is growing? Intuitively, yes, I do. I think that's what, um, like to one of your points earlier, is that uh, out of COVID has come this uh, this rise of localism, and uh, I think that there is the, the the market that we're aiming for. The bubble is growing. Um, I think of, uh, it's one of the things I was always proud of so much with Gabs is that uh, we were every year a- attracting um, so many people who weren't what I would consider in in having that beer bubble that uh, some of us inhabit, um, we were attracting people who just had an open mind really about trying new beers. And I think this message of, of uh, local brewers uh, are popping up all over the place and um, people looking to support their local brewery. Um, I, I think that's, they're all strong indications in my mind, at least that's um, that uh, we're onto a good thing. I also find that some of the bigger independence i think are finding it a little bit harder than perhaps they used to to get traction out of their home state in particular or certainly their home certainly their hometown um because if you now want to if i'm a victorian brewery and i want to sell send my beer over to wa or brisbane or new south wales is that uh you've got to have something pretty special to have people on a sustained basis buy your product when they've got so many incredible breweries locally in those those cities and states. Funnily enough, that's why I made that sort of was a specific question about the engaged consumer because I've got a theory that when, particularly when you go into a lot of the um, brew pubs and you know the, the the local breweries that are small and you know localized, 
that a lot of the people that, you know, 50% of the reason they're there is the beer, but 50% is because it is the new place to drink. It is the new parish pump. It's the new um, local pub, much more than it's actually a place that you can get craft beer. Um, and, and that's why I was wondering whether you saw the engaged audience for people. You know, if you think back to the thing that propelled craft beer was that craft beer revolution mindset. I, I just get a feeling that consumers are a little bit less engaged in the category, but they like the vibe and the ambience and there's a lot more around it. Is, is that and, – and so for me that means that the um, engaged consumer category isn't actually growing Mm, I don't know. I'm just trying to ponder that one because um, I can't really disconnect the two. I think that um, by with all the, the 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 proliferation of these smaller breweries is that is playing a significant part in engaging local communities mm. um, in in the space. And are they there? I think they're there in part because of the vibe and it's the latest thing in town to to go to. But I also think that. Uh, they're they're partly to because they want to support a local manufacturer producing mm. great beers and in so doing they're turning up at the door perhaps with an appetite for a pale ale or a lager or an XBA or whatever uh, you know uh, yep. uh, I'll call it a gateway beer it's an awful expression but I'll call it that but uh, then suddenly they like many other before them had their eyes open to something a bit more diverse and interesting. And I think we all know in our experience that uh, really once you've had your mind blown a little bit by some of the diverse flavours that you can get from beer is that you never look back. So I think that uh, the proliferation of brew pubs is, I would say, helping engage, getting uh, getting people more engaged because they're engaged uh, by – the, the makers whereas obviously if you go into pubs and bars you're not you're not it's, you're not that directly connected at that point to to the makers so yeah, I, I would think okay. maybe maybe there it's it's helping get getting people more engaged I don't know I don't I, I, have to think I, 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 I think the engagement way. is broader but shallower is is the way that I would describe that so more people are engaged in beer through their local brewery yeah. but their level of knowledge about the broader industry is shallower so they don't do you think uh, do, do you think that's i'm just trying to understand do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing uh, it, it, it's that they're shallow that like it's broad but it's not as deep as it may have been i i, I think it's a worrying thing for the industry for messages like the value of independence and you know because lion can be local they can't be independent um and i think that you know line strategy of having more small breweries around that if you're local enough then that's the same as being independent for a lot of consumers and you know so mm. um that's where yeah so so they're they're less engaged in some of the ideas of craft beer or the ideas of independence than they were you know than the revolution phase suggested yeah I, listen i think that that would I, I agree with that i think that uh, as as uh, the appetite for craft beer, independent craft beer, whatever you want to call it, grows. That I think it's not surprising to me that uh, the passion at which people are engaged is less. That doesn't surprise me. But I think uh, I still think there is they're engaged in a positive way. Like you mentioned before, the line strategy. It, it'll be interesting to see how time, in time, how that plays out. Um, I've, I've been really fascinated by what uh, they're doing and. Uh, Knowing them, they've got a lot of smart people that maybe will absolutely make it work. Uh, 
I'll, I'll certainly be very interested to see one way or the other how it goes. We all will. And uh, speaking of uh, passionate people, um, <laughs> uh, back in May, you uh, had a, what I thought was a great idea, um, pot for a shot, encourage people to get vaccinated at a time when uh, you know vaccination wasn't going spectacularly well and had let loose the wolves, um, essentially. Um, you know, some might say they're passionate, some might say they're crazy, um, but you certainly had a, a storm of anti-vaxxers, um, you know, really seek to shut down that campaign. Well, yeah, the idea, it wasn't my idea, it was something I'd seen in the States. Certainly it was something that hadn't been done in Australia, but I'd seen it in the States. And um, I wasn't, we weren't planning on doing anything really like this, but uh, it was about two days before, three days before Gabs Melbourne, where we, Stomping Ground had a stand and Gabs was uh, held, to be held right next door to uh, a mass vaccination centre. I was going to get a jab down there and I thought, well, but this could be a, a fun way of just getting involved using a similar idea to what had happened in the States. And I originally pitched it to to Mike, the new owner of Gabs, and said, and he was right up for doing something. And I said, listen, we'll offer a, a beer because time was of the essence. And he, I said, listen, we'll just offer a free beer. And eventually it became something that I, I just said, listen, well, I'll put out a press release and, and we'll get something happening very quickly. And uh, it was the night of the ARBAs and we had put a post up saying, uh, I think it was, shot for a pot and um, got some very positive uh, comments uh, in the first half an hour, 45 minutes or so, and then sat down for dinner. And about an hour and a half later, my head of marketing rang, said, you've got to, uh, we need to chat. And, uh, <laughs> and then the rest of the uh, evening was a blur because it, I've never kind of experienced something mm. quite like that. And not you and I had a chat at one point as well, but I was, um, I was more concerned for the – listen, I was concerned for the brand because it was uh, certainly – and I was concerned for some of our staff who were reading some of this garbage. But uh, ultimately, we felt, listen, well, it's, it, it wasn't worth it for, for, for the effect it was having on some people. And so we, we just pulled it. But it was fascinating just to in, – in the fullness of time, we learned that uh, the post had been shared very quickly to some very popular anti-vax social media sites uh, – global sites and so we were getting people from all over the globe piling in pretending in many cases they were customers of ours saying horrible nasty things as if we were forcing them to to take these injections uh and um but listen uh, there's other people who have done something similar including small bars pubs and uh even mainstream brands and so i think we just kind of we moved we were very early uh and uh if it, like we didn't, we never apologised for what we did because we felt uh, vaccinations are the key to us uh, as an industry, um, getting back to some level of normality. But um, we maybe, maybe you should have thought about it a little bit more or been prepared a little better. But normally, what we found now is that we, when you put something like that out, a that you feel you feel like we didn't do it flippantly. We that was what we believed mm. was the right thing to do. But you just don't know. And in the past, often people have come to your defence uh, and it's kind of balanced the ledger a little bit. But we, we didn't probably let it run long enough for the, for the good guys to, to join in. So we just had, uh, you know, a thousand people piling in from all over the world. We didn't know who they were. And uh, we thought, listen, it's not worth it. But it's, um, it's a sign of the times, unfortunately. And um, there's a big part of me that, um, you know, just gets angry at the idea that I can be, we can be bullied like that. But uh, listen, you know, in I'll get over that. 
<laughs> well, but, and that's what I was going to ask because you know, two days later, um, you know, it was very soon after the outbreak started, and you know, suddenly there were massive lines for people getting vaccination. Um, you know, it would be very easy to feel vindicated by that. But do you wish that you'd uh, stuck it out um, through that initial storm? Uh, personally, yes, but uh, I, this this uh, this business is. You know, there's a lot of people invested. We employ a lot of people, and uh, there's a lot of opinions. And uh, it, it was a collective view that uh, it, it was upsetting some of our staff, and uh, we were really kind of, and that this is really only in a matter of hours. So we didn't know how long that was going to to go for. And at the end of the day, we kind of cowed to the mass to those kind of crazies or uh passionate people uh, whichever you prefer to call them <laughs> and uh then we made we... <laughs> colors to the to that uh wall and we we made we made we made that decision does it as i said it still sticks in my craw when i'm talking about it that's uh because i just don't I, I just don't like giving into bullies like that but uh, i also know the power of the the internet and sometimes you choose your battles and so that one we decided not to fight um but uh, yeah, we, we believe we believed in what we were saying, was, and as I said, we weren't forcing people to do anything. It was just uh, we believe that uh, vaccinations are the key out of this. And uh, in the weeks that have passed since, I think that's become even more obvious. So we want to get back to normal. We want our mates and colleagues in other states, particularly New South Wales, to get back to normal. And uh, it's pretty evident now what the path is to that. You, you, it wasn't the first time you'd got involved in social campaigns. You were big supporters of the Equality in Marriage campaign and brought out a beer around that, which was, um, you know, I guess potentially a uh, a troubling issue um, for some. Um, would you think twice before getting involved in potentially polarising topics again? Um, short answer is yes. Um, but we... I, th- I think we just probably I was and it's probably on me I was a little naive to what how hot button an issue this uh, this vaccination thing was certainly at that time but the, the marriage thing listen we got some pushback from some ugly people out there um, when we did that and we've obviously done it ever since and it gets bigger and b- more important to us every year um, that pride advice campaign around midsummer but um, yeah I, th- I think I- I'd be lying if I said I wasn't uh, affected to the point where i would uh think twice three times even four times next time but also listen we we're not averse to taking risks uh, as a business uh, i think that's part of uh this, some of the successes we've had and uh some in order to get a start or you know to to stand out amongst your competitors is sometimes you have to move fast did we move too fast this time possibly but it, you know that's what we believed and uh, sometimes We'll, we'll, we'll certainly stand up for things and, and stand by other causes in the future if, if we feel passionate about them. But we would definitely run it through, uh, look through it, look at it a little more carefully at it, I guess, before we pressed, you know, post on a, on, a, on something like that. Yeah, but again, like I, I felt incredibly sorry for you as a business because it had the appearance of an overwhelming um, reaction when in reality it seemed to be a small group of highly motivated campaigners who gave the impression of being much deeper than, than, than it would but in such a short time I guess uh, you, know, you were in a very very uncertain stage as, as you were wondering whether to take the post down and, and, and what to do. 
Yeah, as I said, that's um, what is that? Five weeks or so ago. There's a lot happened since then. Mm. If, if if someone else else had done something like that and been through the horror that we went through at the time, um, we'd look at it differently now and we'd make more you know a more calculated assessment. But I, I don't I don't think we we certainly don't apologise for doing standing up for what we believe in because we're a big employer of people and uh, it's had. COVID has had a massive impact on not only our business and uh, but our staff and our broader industry and colleagues. And uh, if if we have to take uh, you know take the heat for that uh, in this instance, then so be it. But um, it's uh, as I said, it's just the sign of the times. And it's uh, I, I'm not a particular fan of social media in any way, shape, <laughs> or form. But I understand it's a helpful business tool. And Necessary we use it. evil, some might um, say. Yeah, it is. And uh, but as if I'd. If I knew now what I, I – if I knew then what I know now, I don't know if we were being quite as quick to pull it, but, um, but you know, at the time it was, it, was really, it was really horrific. As you know, I think you saw me when my, all the blood had drained from my face and I was concerned about my colleagues and, and our business. Um, so, but, yeah, it's, uh, these things uh, – uh, there's a new outrage uh, 24 hours later, so um, <laughs> thankfully we just, we just kept, we took it down, kept, Look kept our there. head down. Yeah, exactly. We, <laughs> we t- you know, took it down, kept our head down. We kind of went quiet, um, as was advised um, by um, some of our, you know, the people we looked to for advice. And um, sure enough, in two or three days, there was something else that was, as you say, I think it was suddenly it was a, another lockdown. So that was the story. Do yeah. Europe. So just as we bring this interview to a close, I'm mindful of the time. Uh, what's next for Stomping Ground? Uh, obviously, you had three event, well, uh, if you include. Um, the Tap House. Um, it, is the Tap House like considered part of the Stomping Ground family, or is it a second cousin? No, no, it's it's still very much part of the family. It's up. It's kind of the original. It's the uh, the, the the baby. It's, there's a lot of uh, a lot of heart in that business for us. It's uh, it's not uh, it's heyday anymore, but it still does very very strong trade. We love what it stands for. We love the community of people that uh, have supported us for 12 years or so. We love the fact that we're still at uh, or very near the top of the pile when it comes people smarter than us judge beer bars around the country. We're kind of always uh, up, up there. So, mm. you know, we, we were among the first, if not the first of that nature of bar. And now they're everywhere. And it's, it's amazing to see. We, we love it. It's also very close to our homes. And so we, tend to spend a, a fair bit of time there as well. So, no, the Tap House is, is very much part of the family. Obviously, three stomping grounds. At the moment, we'll just uh, – Morris Moore has been busy off the charts for the first two weeks, uh, much busier than we expected, which is is all welcome. But uh, there's the inevitable list of things that we're trying to uh, just tweak and improve that any new business uh, encounters. So we're just – we'll bet it down. Obviously, we've got the summer ahead. There's obviously a level of uncertainty uh, until vaccinations are in the arms of enough people. But um, it's possible we'll we'll look at another one, um, and we're fortunate that uh, because of the success of Collingwood and the airport, and now Morris Moore, is that uh, we do have plenty of approaches and partners that uh, want to do something with us. So I wouldn't say that we wouldn't do another one. We're not, we've no appetite for doing you know dozen a dozen of these things, um, but um, yeah, there might be another one. But I would say not in the next not in the next year or two. Oh, so you you're not in negotiations. Uh, no, no, there's nothing that I can share at the moment, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Matt. But um, yeah, at the moment we're just going to bed this one down, um, and uh, it's been a tough 15 months or so from from a business point of view. So we need to just kind of get this one right, get all our businesses firing as best as possible for as long as possible, hoping there's no other lockdown, and then uh, 
Oh, we, listen, we've got we've always got things on the table that, that we're exploring that we're excited about. It's in my nature. Once uh, once Morris Moore is open and it's 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 up and running and it's in Justin and his team's hands, uh, I'm certainly a, a little more focused on what we might do. Yeah, what we might do next. Oh, looking forward to hearing about it in due course. Well, Steve, thank you very much for talking us through the uh, the, the growing stomping ground. I won't call it empire, but growing stomping ground footprint. Um, and uh, I, I can't wait till well, Queensland's allowed to travel uh, for a change and so I can get down and check out the uh, new Morris Moore venue. Well, I'd love to show you around, Matt. And sit down, have a few beers. I always love catching up and uh, having our chats and debates and discussions. <laughs> Thanks, mate. I'll uh, look forward to that. Thanks, Matt. And that was Steve Jeffers. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cryo Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryo Malt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. They are your premium brewing partner and they are our premium partner in beer conversations. <laughs>